Once upon a time, there was a young shepherd, a boy after God's own heart. He went from tending sheep to leading armies, from wearing a sword to wearing a crown. He was one of history's greatest kings who committed one of history's most infamous murders. His rise built a kingdom. His fall would tear it apart. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Well, as you can probably tell, I'm not Pastor Morgan. I know you, we look alike, so it might be confusing for some people, so I wanted to make sure I was to keep you in the loop. Uh, no, seriously, Pastor Morgan and his family have been out this past week getting some, some time off, some much-needed rest and relaxation, so uh, please pray for their safe uh, return as well as being well-rested. Uh, we are continuing, as you saw on the screen, our series on Rise and Fall, uh, The Life of King David. Uh, Morgan will be closing out the series next week, and in a couple weeks from today, we'll be starting a new series, so you'll hear more about that next week when, when he returns. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Brett preached a message, great message, on, on David's mighty men and, and the, the call for discipleship. And the, the week before that, Morgan preached a, another great message about God's great mercy. And today, we're going to be taking a closer look at, at David's family. And the title of today's message is, Put Your House in Order. Before we get started, I'd like to open this in prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, for your ever-loving kindness towards us. And we pray that today that as we look at your word, that you would just speak your truths to us, that we could apply to our lives and be more like Jesus. I pray, God, that you would move me out of your way and let your presence and your spirit move and touch the hearts of your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. See, in the United States, it's common for those in power to, to be in the headlines. There's nothing that catches our eye and our attention like a good scandal, Right? I mean, we look at our history and things that have been etched in our mind like Watergate, the Iran-Contra affair, and who can forget the, the Clinton-Lewinsky affair. And the list goes on. The popularity of TV dramas keep our eyes glued to the screen because they're filled with scandals and cover-ups. Today we find ourselves looking at a story of a son's bitterness and a family's dysfunction and ultimately leads to rebellion and revenge. The story has everything that catches our attention, sex, murder, and a struggle for power. And if we didn't know what Absalom's story was straight from the Bible, we would, we would swear it came straight out of a movie. Like political leaders today, the lives of the royal family in ancient Israel on public display. So even the slightest whisper of a scandal was spread like wildfire. Contained within just a few chapters, there's enough plots and action to do multiple series of a TV drama. The main characters in this drama are David, the greatest king in Israel's history, and his bitter son, Absalom. My hope is to examine this story and see what principles that we can take away from it and apply to our own lives. So let's dive in. So a little bit of background about David and his family. So David had eight wives, at least, 10 concubines, 19 sons, and one daughter. That's a big family. I don't know about y'all. Eight wives and 10 concubines, I can't keep up with one. 
I love my wife. I, what? I ain't got, nobody got time for that. <laughs> 20, 20 kids? 20, 20 children. When you got more than three or four, it's cheering. <laughs> cheering. I mean, seriously, can you imagine having that many kids? Like, you know you got too many kids when you got to wear name tags when you go home. It's, it was, it, I mean, can you imagine playing a game of Monopoly with that many kids? You have to take like a week vacation just so you can finish a game. I mean, I would, what's your name? Number 12. Can you roll the dice, please? Is your tra- I, 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 couldn't, I just couldn't do it. I, I would ban board games from my house. No, I'm sorry. As you can imagine, David's polygamy made it next to impossible to spend any quality time with his wives and his children. And as a result, it left his family both fragmented and dysfunctional. While we admire David for all of his exploits from slaying lions and defeating giants, building a great kingdom, Absalom had a front row seat to see his dad's failure as a dad. I'm going to attempt to briefly summarize six chapters of scripture, pray for me, and lay out the story of David and Absalom. And I'd like for us to look at the events that took place through three lenses. The product of passivity, the call for character, and God's plan of hope. Let's start off with the product of passivity. So giving a little bit of background, see Absalom was King David's third son. And he had a sister named Tamar, or Tamar, however you prefer to pronounce it. We can call it Tay-Tay for short. <laughs> Tay-Tay. Now, the Bible says that Tay-Tay was fine, right? She had it going on. Let's keep it real. This is, I'm sorry, this is the BSV, Barnabas slang version. I apologize. So, Tamar is beautiful. The Bible says that she was beautiful to look at. Stay with me now. And Absalom had a half-brother named Amnon. Now, Amnon was infatuated with Tamar. I mean, he couldn't stop thinking about it. He would see her walk by. He said, wow, man, that's a tall drink of water. Can a brother get a sip? <laughs> and so one of his boys, Jonadab, these names, right? Let's call him Little John for short. <laughs> so Little John sees his boy and he's like, brother, you normally look fresh. You normally have a haircut. Your breath stink. Your body odor is out of control. You look a hot mess. What's going on? So my man, Amnon's like, look, he just, he just puts it on the table. You know, Tamar, I've just been thinking about this girl night and day. I, I'm in love with this girl. So Jonadab says, you know, I got a plan. I'm going to help you out. What you do is you pretend to be ill. You tell King David that you, you're feeling terrible, and you just want your, your sister, Tamar, to come make some food for you, take care of you, nurse you back to health. He agrees, goes out with the plan, tells King David, I'm not feeling well. Can you send my sister Tamar to take care of me? She comes, begins to cook for him and serve him and gets ready to feed him. But before she's able to feed him, he sends all the servants out of the room. And he goes to her and he grabs her. And he says, lay with me. She, of course, refuses and says, no, she pleaded with him. King David would not withhold me from you. Basically saying he, he would give me to be your wife and we could do this the right way. But see, Amnon wasn't interested in a lifelong commitment. He only wanted one thing, and what he described as love was really lust. And so as he grabbed hold of her, being stronger than her, he raped her. And then if that wasn't enough, he basically gets his guards to throw her out of his chamber. And she walks away in shame. 
So what does King David do about this? Let's take a look. It says in 2 Samuel 13, verses 20 to 21. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And when King David heard all these things, he was very angry. And I stopped there because the story kind of abruptly stops there as far as the actions of King David goes. So here's Amnon, the oldest son of King David, who basically has this attitude of, I'm the son of the king. If I want something, I'll take it. And there's nothing that anyone can do about it. And the word spreads and it comes to the king's ears and he does absolutely nothing. Now, I'm bothered by this. And maybe I'm sure most of you, especially fathers of of daughters, are bothered by it as well. Because, I mean, here's his only daughter, 20 kids, one daughter, one little princess, one apple of his eye. And she's violated, dignity taken away. He sits back and does nothing. Now, I have a baby girl, and I don't care who you are. You put so much as a pinky finger on my baby girl. Can somebody say prison ministry? It's going to be on and popping. I'm just keeping it real. I'm just keeping it real. Just being honest. Gonna be, just being honest. So you see his arrogance. He abuses his power. But the important note thing to, to, to take into consideration is that according to Levitical law, ancestral relationships were not permitted. In fact, they were looked at as depravity, perversion. And the result of that type of relationship was that you would be banned and outcast from your family. And Absalom, like any good brother, was enraged by this. Angry. And instead of taking it up with the king and saying, hey, I'm, I'm really bothered by this. We need to, we need to do the right thing. He allows bitterness and anger to swell in his heart. And over the next two years, he plans and plots to get revenge. So let's fast forward. It's a couple years later. And Absalom has this plan. He throws this big party. It's basically a sheep shearing kind of party. It's kind of weird. You know, we we do punch and chips. We shave sheep. I don't know. So he has this party, and, he, and he, he invites all the king's sons. And he even invites the king, and he says, would you go to this, this festival? This, it's going to be awesome. Would you be there? And it really, he, he had a plan because he knew the king wouldn't go. But he didn't want to be so aggressive in saying, let Amnon come first, because he didn't want his dad to be suspicious. But after the dad refused and say, I, I, I won't be going, he said, well, allow Amnon to come along with the rest of your sons. It'll be awesome. It'll be an epic party. So finally, after resisting initially, King David says, go ahead, sends him off in his blessing. And when they arrive during, at, the, at the party and everybody's having a good time, Absalom instructs his servants. He says, when Amnon is drunk with wine, strike him dead. And the servants do as he says, and all the other kings are uh, raise alarm. They jump on their mules and they flee. And the word gets back to the king. Now, I want to read 2 Samuel 13, 37 through 39. It says, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai. This was his grandfather, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur. 
and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, there's a couple of things to take into consideration when you look at this story up until this point. David missed a couple of opportunities. First and foremost, he, he didn't address the issue of, of, of rape and of his own family. But then he didn't address the issue of Absalom murdering his other son. And then you, you look at this, and now Absalom is basically banished. So first of all, foremost, David failed to guide his son as the bitterness and anger grew in his heart. He didn't help him to navigate and how to keep himself holy in the midst of that. Part of the reason was that David didn't even execute justice himself. Probably would have been a little bit easier for Absalom to accept that if he had punished Amnon for what he did. Secondly, King David had an opportunity to reach out to his son. He said his heart was comforted. He kind of forgave Absalom. He, he longed to be reconciled to his son, but never reached out to him. So you look at this. Two years before Absalom kills his brother, two years David had a window of time to address the issue head on and be the dad he was called to be. Three years, King David had an opportunity to reach out to his son and display God's mercy and grace and reunite a broken family. But he didn't. He chose not to. His pride wouldn't let him. And what's interesting is after Joab, king's, the king's uh, army, the head of the army, creates this neat situation to, to, to convince the king to bring Absalom back. He's been gone for three years. The king goes ahead and consents, brings Absalom back, but he's not to go into the king's presence. Two years go by. He doesn't see his dad. Collectively, seven years go by. Hadn't seen his dad. I mean, you, you, you think about that. Really, it was five because two, two of the years he was still in the, in the palace before he fled. And what's interesting is Absalom, you can understand how if your dad has not embraced you as his son and you have this anger and bitterness that's grown in your heart, and even when you come back home, there's this rift between you. You can understand why coming back home didn't really change Absalom's plan. So let's look, let's look at Samuel, 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 6. It says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is from such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I will give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. See, ancient kings, kings were not just head of a kingdom. They really were like the Supreme Court, right? And so when, when people were not 
given justice in their local communities, they would go to the king and either the king himself or a representative of the king would hear their case, their cause. And so Absalom, realizing that man, these cases are building up, a lot of people are coming from across the land with issues that are going unresolved. Instead of going to his father and saying, King, how can I serve you and our people and make this better? He decides to create a plan to where he could take the throne. It's interesting how when people came to bow down to him, he would lift them up again and embrace them. But it was a facade. My question, though, is where is King David in all of this? Here you have his son standing at the gate. This is the entrance to the city. Where is he? The people are in need. The people are wondering, where is my justice? Where is the king? His kingdom is falling apart right under his nose, and he's too blind to see it. It creates an ample opportunity for Absalom to execute his plan. So where did it all go wrong? Was it at the city gate where Absalom convinced the hearts of Israel to be devoted to him? I don't think so. It wasn't at the gate. It was behind the walls of the palace where a king consistently forgot to check his crown at the door and be the father his kids needed. See, David didn't hear the silent cries of his kids saying, show me, to, show me how to be a man after God's own heart. Show me how to love him all the days of my life. He didn't hear him. See, he led battles of valiant men killing the multitudes, but he failed to lead his family. So this brings us to our next point, the call for character. You've heard it said before, you can't judge a book by its cover. And well, things are not always what it seems. This is true for everyone, particularly for, for Absalom. I'd like to paint a picture of how they describe his appearance. It says in 2 Samuel 14, 25 through 26, now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head for the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. it he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. 200 shekels is the equivalent of five pounds. That's a lot of hair. Perfect skin, no acne. He don't need no Clarisil. He good. <laughs> Prime pickings in the gene pool. He was praised for how handsome he was. Well, let me paint a picture for you. Fellas, you, you kicking in with your girl. Husbands, you with your wife for lunch. You're having a good little time. Good food. You picked just the right thing on the menu. Raspberry lemonade is on point. Y'all having a great conversation. Your woman's laughing at all your jokes. She's looking at you. You looking at her. Hearts in your eyes. It's amazing. All of a sudden, Absalom walks by. You, you see that head? You irritated at first, right? You got a man like, and you just you messed up the mood. We was really, we was vibing right now. You just messed it up. And then you look up, you see Absalom. You know, I ain't even mad at you. You want some of my fries? You going about your business. Brother was bad. I mean, brother had it going on. Let's be real. So it wasn't like he was the best looking guy in your high school or your neighborhood. All of Israel. It don't matter where you go. Ain't nobody better looking at this dude. 
So you can understand how it was easy to be infatuated with his appearance, to be captivated by his exterior. You know, I emphasize this because isn't it true for us? Can we look at the exterior of things and be so attracted to it that we forget that there may be something different underneath? See, what's interesting is that Absalom's inside didn't match his outside. But the people of Israel didn't know that. He seemed to be the full package. Handsome, charming, compassionate, sympathized with the people. But in actuality, underneath, he was just using them to accomplish his agenda. It's no surprise that God instructed Samuel just a couple chapters before, actually a book before, when they were trying to choose a king for Israel during the time that Saul was king. It says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, Absalom wanted the throne, but God didn't call him to have it. Not because he didn't look good enough, because his heart wasn't good enough. And had he taken time to do an inventory of his heart and allow God to heal him, maybe he could have been the next in line. But he chose to take it a different route. He wanted to take what he thought was his. See, David's government had become laxed. As I mentioned earlier, many cases were awaiting trial. Cases demanding his royal decision had accumulated. The king had forfeited his former love and respect for his people. And now it was Absalom's opportunity to take advantage of it. Think about it. Absalom knew exactly what he was doing. He carefully cultivated and excited and enticed people. He created this image for people. He had these, these chariots in front of him. He had 50 men go before him, this essence of royalty. He got people's attention. He worked hard, getting up early in the morning, going to the gate. Knew exactly where to position himself. He targeted the people that were troubled, sympathized with them. Took personal interest in what they were going through. Pretended like he cared. He never attacked David directly. He just simply said, no, there's no deputy. There's nobody here to hear you. He left the troubled person with no solution. If only there was someone here to hear you. Without directly attacking David, Absalom promised to do better. See, Absalom soon tells his father that he's going to go to Hebron and and pay a vow which he made to the Lord. And Absalom committed treason under the guise of worship, pretending that he was going to go worship the Lord, but in actuality he was going to betray his own father. It's interesting how he knew that the spiritual appearance would work in his favor. You know, it's a, there's a famous photographer by the name of Yusuf Karsh. Yusuf was an American-Canadian portrait photographer. He's arguably one of the greatest portrait photographers of the 20th century. Here's what he said about character. He said, character like a photograph develops in the darkness. Isn't it interesting? He's doing these dark times in Absalom's life you begin to see the lack of character show up and be evident in his life. During those two years that he waited to kill his brother, during the three years he waited to return to the kingdom, and those two years that he was plotting to take over the throne. It was in those opportunities, those secret places behind closed doors, not in public display, 
See, character isn't about what people see. It's about what they don't see. And here we see firsthand that there's these similarities between even King David and Absalom, both of them handsome. You, you see even in, in previous in the, in the Old Testament, it talks about how he was ruddy, he was handsome. But more than that, it said that he was a man after God's own heart. You don't see that about Absalom. Ironically, David's last word to Absalom when he told him that he was going to go worship or go in peace. Upon hearing these words, Absalom went to carry on the plot to overthrow David's kingdom. Absalom counted on the hope that most of Israel would see his actions as heroic and not as treason. So a messenger comes to David. The hearts of men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to his servants who were with him in Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. See, David knew Absalom had a wicked heart. He knew that he was ruthless, and he valued power over principle. He understood that he didn't want to see Jerusalem become a battleground, so he fled. And David left behind ten concubines to keep the house. You see, many of us may remember years before when King Saul was on the throne, David left the safety of Saul's palace to live as a fugitive in the woods. Those years in the wilderness prepared David to be king. It's interesting how God sent him back into the wilderness once again to continue the same work in his life. So Absalom enters Jerusalem to continue his scheme to take the throne. And at the advice of David's former advisor, he publicly sleeps with David's concubines on the top of the palace sent a very clear message to all of Israel about the relationship between him and his dad. What's even more interesting is that it's the same place that David gazed upon Bathsheba. Hmm. Absalom raised the standard of a revolt at Hebron and he continues to pursue David. A decisive battle was fought in Gilead in the woods of Ephraim. Here David's forces were totally defeated. Abraham, Absalom's forces were totally defeated. And as he himself was escaping, that long hair we talked about, that five-pound hair, actually got entangled in some branches of a tree. It left him hanging there. His mule leaves from under him, and he's just hanging. Eventually, Joab, the leader of David's army, sees him there, throws javelins in his heart. So what now? Here you are, a king. Daughter's been raped by one of your own sons. Son's been murdered by another son. And now your son's dead in battle after trying to not only take your, li- your, your throne, but take your life. Is there blood ultimately a result of your poor decisions and lack of guidance? See, King David won the battle for the kingdom but lost the most important battle in his home. Maybe some of us are in similar predicaments. Perhaps you've received accolades, promotions at your place of work. You're victorious there, right? But when you're at home, not so much. Maybe you 
prefer to spend more hours in your office because at least there you don't feel like a failure. And when you walk home, you walk through those doors, you're physically present, but your heart and soul haven't checked out of the job and checked into engaging your family. Anybody ever been there? David was a flawed man. And even though he, we can learn from his victories, let us not forget the importance of learning from his mistakes. David knew that there was only one place that he could find hope, which brings me to my final point. God's plan of hope. I'd like to read a passage from Psalms 63. It's a little long, but I think it's important to read. It says, oh God, you are my, my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyous lips. When I remember you upon my bed, meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. There shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars shall be stopped. In God's presence, our problems don't necessarily go away, but they're placed in proper perspective. We are reminded of who he is and who we belong to. Our hearts cling to our heavenly father. He upholds us. He will take care of our enemies and silence the mouth of the liar. See, maybe for you, Absalom isn't a person. Maybe it's your past coming to haunt you. Maybe it's a reoccurring sin that you just can't seem to get victory over, wanting to take your life. And you believe that there's no hope. That your dreams of freedom have died. But God has come to silence the mouth of the liar. He says in Samuel 4, 14, 14, this is when Joab signs a woman who's a wise woman in the land to go speak and convince King David to bring his son home. This is what she says. She says, we, we all must die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not stay away. Life, and he, he will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. There's times in our life where we're, we feel like Absalom. Our sin has separated us from God. Pushed away, banished, and outcast. But see, our story doesn't have to end like his. See, we don't serve a king who's, who's wicked. We don't have a king that's passive. We don't have someone who's so busy tending to other things that he's forgotten us. We have a king who loves us, a God who desires to bring his sons and daughters back home, not to punish us and hide his face from us, but to heal us and give us life. In close, I want to give one last verse. It was the, the verse after King David was informed of his son's death. He says, and the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, 
what I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. See, King David never wanted his son to die. In fact, he instructed the, the commanders of his armies to deal gently with his son, to spare his life. Even after, after Absalom murdered one of the king's sons and plotted to steal the kingdom, sought after King David's life, David loved him. Does this sound familiar? See, our, our fate does not have to end up like these two. But actually, when we look at when we think about it, we have a king that not just desired to die for us, but actually did. We, we cursed him. We put nails in his hands and feet. We watched him die. Sat back as he bled. But glory be to God that the king of kings cannot be dethroned. His kingdom is everlasting. His love is unending. And his grace is sufficient. Can you stand with me today, church? As we think about the, the life and story of King David and Absalom, I, I think that we may fall in different categories today. Maybe we're like King David, so busy, focused on one thing. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's just dealing with life and your family's suffering. Your relationships are dying and wasting away. Too blind to see it or too prideful to do anything about it and admit that you're wrong. Maybe that's you in that boat this morning. I've had my moments putting family wrong last and focusing on work, forgetting that my first call and my first ministry is my wife and my kids. Am I alone? Anybody else been there? Maybe you're like Absalom, broken, torn apart because of your sin and your shortcomings, feeling pushed away. I can't go to God. He doesn't want to listen to my voice. He doesn't want to hear me. Church, I want to remind you that that's a lie from the enemy. And God has come to heal and restore. We serve a king that loves us so much. If you feel like God was touching your heart and tugging on something in your life, I want you to raise your hand. Don't be afraid. There's no judgment here. I want to pray for you. Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you're a king that is engaged and not passive. I thank you that you are a king that sees our enemies coming after us. And you don't sit back and do nothing, but you go to war on our behalf. I thank you, Lord God, that you sent your son and it, by his blood and his stripes, it is done. I thank you that it is finished. I thank you, Lord God, that you can renew us. You can give us a heart like King David with the grace and the, the ability to act the way that you've called us to and be like Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you called us to be a people that's after your own heart. I thank you that you don't forget us. You don't cast us away. You don't let us go away for years and not reach out to us. God, each and every day, you call out to us as a loving father, caring for his children. I thank you, Lord, that in our darkest places, you're able to shine your light and your love and your grace. I thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. God, we thank you this morning. We thank you today that your grace is sufficient, that your awesome passing power is more than we need to have victory in our lives. Would you heal us in our hearts? Would you help us to see the needs and the holes in our families, Lord? Would you forgive us for putting 
things wrong place, wrong order for not putting you first and not caring for the family. Those that are most important to us next to you. Would you forgive us, Lord, for allowing sin to push us away from your presence instead of pushing us closer to it? Would you heal our land and our hearts? Lord, we thank you. We ask you to come and walk with us. We thank you that you've promised to never leave nor forsake us. And we give you the glory. Help us to honor you and love you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.